Thank you, Scott, too, for leading us in the first part of our evening worship. You know, it's not often I am preceded by someone who is an enthusiastic England rugby team supporter. Um, And I had actually decided I wasn't going to mention the Grand Slam tonight, and I wasn't going to mention Jacob Stocktail, and I wasn't going to mention St. Patrick's Day this year at Twickenham, but I did see a photograph, and the caption on the photograph was, Disgusting Scenes at Twickenham as the stewards tried to keep the English supporters there in the stadium until the end of the match. But so I decided I wasn't going to mention any of those things this evening. And is that all right, Scott? So we'll we'll keep comments about the rugby for another time. Anyway, I hope you're heavy on forgiveness. (laughs) Um, Nigel, thank you for praying too. You know, one of the things I think that's so important in a week like this is that it is for all of us uh, a week of prayer, actually. And I'm thrilled to hear that during the daytime, there are prayer times here and folks from different expressions of the Church of Jesus Christ meeting together to pray. You never know what happens when God's people meet to pray. And just in the past few days, I came across a superb little prayer. It is so short. And uh, I'm making it my prayer, and I trust it will be yours for this week. And here it is. It's so simple. Lord, give us weak eyes for the things which are of no account, and clear eyes for all your truth. Give us weak eyes for the things that are of no account, and clear eyes for all your truth. And I just pray that the Lord will give us listening ears and open eyes this week as we seek to discern what God is doing in the world today and what he's done in the past, and as we listen to hear what he's saying to us and what the Spirit is saying to the church today. Really, if you take a step back from what we call Holy Week this week, In many ways, if you think about it, we are looking at the very central events of the Christian faith. We are looking at what could quite rightly be described as the very heart of Christianity. We are looking at things of first importance. We are looking at things, truths, events, that have so captured people's hearts and minds for centuries, that people have been not only willing to live for the one crucified and raised from the dead, but willing to die for him as well. And I think it's sobering to think that as we gather here this evening for worship and reflection, in other parts of the world, there are brothers and sisters in Christ who are in prison, facing death, And there are more Christians being persecuted in more countries in the world now in the year 2018 than ever before. So what we are looking at this week are truths that I humbly suggest are the most important truths we will ever open our hearts and minds to and certainly the most important events that this world has ever witnessed. If you think about it, Christmas actually doesn't mean anything without Good Friday. Good Friday doesn't mean anything without Easter Sunday. And Easter Sunday doesn't mean anything without Pentecost. 
Pentecost doesn't mean anything without the ascension and the promise of Christ's return. They are all, to quote our politicians of many years ago, inextricably linked. And what I want to do in these few nights together is really to go back and see some of the things that happened 2,000 years ago that have changed the history of the world. One of the lessons I've discovered in life is we learn so much from other people, from their lives, from their memories, from their example. And I think too, as we read the Bible and as we look at the events of what we call Holy Week, if we try and put ourselves into the shoes or sandals of the people then, I think we'll have some fresh understandings of what this week is all about. In fact, I'll go further than that. I think as we look at these people of over 2,000 years ago, we will actually see ourselves in them. Isn't it interesting that in that Bible passage we had this evening from Matthew 21, we read about crowds of people. In fact, verse eight in Matthew 21 specifically refers to a very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road as Jesus entered Jerusalem. The next verse, verse nine, the crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted. In verse 11, the crowds answered in response to the question, who is this? They answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. When you read the gospels, so often crowds are mentioned. Do you remember when the, at Christmas time when we hear the stories of the birth of Jesus? There were crowds of people making their way to Bethlehem. There was a census going on. When Jesus ministered in public for those three years, crowds of people followed him. He spoke to 5,000 on one occasion. Extraordinary. At the cross, we are told there were crowds of people. Crowds shouting, crucify him. But here on what we call Palm Sunday, or the entry of Christ into Jerusalem, there are crowds shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And in the Gospels, don't we read too in Matthew 9, when Jesus saw the crowds, what filled his heart? Compassion. My, how we need that in the church today. That as you and I look at the crowds, the teeming crowds of people, whether they're in Twickenham or Aviva Stadium or whether they're in the streets of our large cities or whether they're in small rural villages, the hearts of Christian people should be stirred with compassion when we look at other people. So let's focus for a few moments this evening on the crowds that welcomed Jesus as he entered Jerusalem. In some ways, I often think this entry of Christ in Jerusalem is a little bit like a 21st century sporting fixture, whether it's World Cup or 
a, a huge big match between two big teams or whatever, there's a lot of buzz around. And have you noticed, and we in Northern Ireland know this very well, a crowd generates a crowd. Isn't that right? You know, if you want to gather a crowd, here's a, here's a, I, 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 I challenge you to try this sometime in the center of Bangor. Get two or three or four people just to stand right. And I guarantee within a few minutes there'll be a crowd. What are you looking at? Isn't that right? I read some time ago about antidotes to boredom. And one of the suggestions was if you're really bored, and you're a man, borrow your wife's hairdryer, go out in your car, park at the side of the road, and point the hairdryer <laughs> out the front windscreen. See what happens. You'll have a lot of fun, I guarantee. Just watch the number of people who break in front of you. But crowds generate crowds, isn't that right? And I'm no doubt that was part of the dynamic here. But why are they here? It's not for a sporting event, it's to see Jesus. The carpenter's son the one who, was, who grew up in Nazareth, a few of them are seeing prophecy fulfilled. That's their filter. The king is entering the city. They spread out their coats and their cloaks. Others spread branches. If a journalist was writing about it nowadays, they'd say he was given the red carpet treatment. And he was. Except it wasn't a red carpet, carpet, it was palm branches. Thunderous applause, loud cheering, intense excitement. A little bit like the open top bus parades nowadays, isn't it? When a huckle united beat Liverpool. The open top bus goes round a huckle and all the crowds are out to see this wonderful team. It's a little bit like that. That's the kind of context of this, isn't it? And some of the Pharisees are in that crowd. And of course, they're about their usual business, criticism. And so some of the Pharisees say, Jesus, rebuke your disciples. Isn't it amazing how the Pharisees have never died? Do you know anybody like that? No matter what's going on, they'll want to criticize. They'll want to come in with something negative. And I'll let you into a secret. Do you know what they have for dessert? Apple grumble. And do you know what Jesus replied to them when he was challenged to rebuke his disciples? He said, I tell you, If they keep quiet, the very stones will cry out. There is something really important happening here today. A rapturous welcome is given the one who's described as the son of David, who comes in the name of the Lord. And they shout and praise Hosanna in the highest heaven. And yet, and yet, there's something strange going on. If you read Luke's account of the entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, there's just something that is different. In Luke 19, we read about what we've just read about in Matthew. But then Luke says this, as Jesus approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept 
over it. That's a bit different, isn't it? That's not what we associate with celebration, excitement, celebrating a win at a sporting. If there are tears, they're tears of joy, relief. But Jesus is shedding tears and they're tears of compassion. He loves these people. He can see how they are and he longs for them to find a better way. Luke goes on to say in Luke 19, verse 42, and Jesus said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes, if you had only known. This is our Jesus, folks. One whose heart is filled with compassion. And do you know what's extraordinary? The intense excitement of this, the praise, the rapture, the shouting, the singing, the celebrating as Jesus enters. And a few days later, these same people have experienced climate change. The atmosphere is totally different. We now know why Jesus wept. Because these very people who were cheering him into Jerusalem are now jeering him and shouting, crucify him, crucify him. The bully boys have been at work. Their enthusiastic rejoicing has changed to outright rejection. Blood is in the air. And the cries grow louder, crucify him, get rid of him, give us Barabbas, away with Jesus. My goodness, how quickly people change. We're talking about a few days here. What's happened? Have you ever thought this is extraordinary? How could people change so quickly? What's gone wrong? Where's their loyalty? I don't know about you, but in some ways I find it frightening that people can change so quickly. They'd expected a king, a messiah, a great liberator. And now the one they thought would be that is a prisoner about to be crucified. He's been whipped, flogged, utterly rejected. Things didn't work out as some of the crowd expected. The manipulators had been at work. Behind the scenes, as they often are, they'd been plotting and scheming. Cleverly and craftily, they had achieved their ambition. They'd had him arrested. They'd had him betrayed. And they had swayed the crowd completely. I don't know if anybody here tonight is in the advertising business, but could I just say something? Clever advertising is not an invention of the 20th or 21st century. 
the enemies of Jesus knew about clever advertising and persuasive marketing 2,000 years ago because the crowd changed their mind. It's not only our politicians and big businesses that know the importance of powerful and persuasive advertising, that know that people can be influenced. The opponents of Jesus and the Pharisees knew that right here. The crowd so easily influenced changed their allegiance. Unbelievable. Have you ever seen a chameleon? Isn't it incredible how a chameleon can change its color so quickly? This moment, it's one color. A few months later, completely different color so that we can hardly see it. Just like the crowd. Like sheep without a shepherd. Confused. Drifting. Mistaken. Lost. And they opposed Christ. And they chanted for his death. Now, could I suggest something? Before we criticize the crowd, and before we criticize these people for their lack of loyalty, their rapid change of allegiance, I wonder could we just press the pause button and stop and think for a few moments? Do you know one of the things that disturbs me most about these crowds? Too often I'm like these people. And I somehow suspect I'm not the only one here tonight. Too often in our lives we're just like these crowds. People who are for Christ one moment and then we do something crazy and we're against him the next. People who make wise choices and then within a few minutes we're making a foolish choice. One moment we're wanting to be so close to Christ and intimate with him and within a few hours we're intentionally and deliberately disobeying him. How can we change so quickly? I sometimes think when we look at these crowds that cheered him in his entry into Jerusalem and then jeered him before the cross and at the cross, I sometimes think we're actually looking in a mirror when we see them, aren't we? And sometimes the Bible, a mirror in our lives, we see ourselves here and it's frightening. Be really honest tonight. Are there not times in your life and my life when we've chosen to go with the crowd? The peer pressure was just too much. We just thought, well, what will we think of us if we live like Jesus? So we just give in. We're more concerned about what other people think than about what Jesus thinks. 
I remember years ago being invited to be a trainer in, at a, one of the nationwide Billy Graham initiatives. And during the training that we had as trainers, this wonderful, wonderful Christian man from the States was teaching us. And during the course of the training, with tears in his eyes, he told us a little bit of his, of his own personal story which included telling us about his son whom he loved deeply. And when his son was at school, he wanted his hair long, but his dad didn't, and World War III broke out. And he said this with the tears in his eyes, he said, I lost my son over the length of his hair. He said that was many years ago and we still don't have a relationship. And then he said this, I thought this was incredibly honest. He said, I analyzed why I didn't want my son to have long hair. And he said, it was nothing to do with my son. I realized to my shame that the real issue for me was what would my friends think about me if I had a son with long hair. very honest. But you know what he was talking about. We've all been there, haven't we? What other people think, the peer pressure, the pool of the crowd becomes more important than what God thinks. How often do we give in? Maybe some of us are here tonight and we know quite honestly we are going with the crowd at the moment. We're not living a distinctive Christian life, a life of self-denial, a life of total surrender, a generous life, a kind life, a life like Jesus. For whatever reason, we just, we're choosing to live a different way. Wonder is the Lord calling us tonight to be single-minded, faithful, loyal to Christ. If you talk to any of our politicians, they know only too well the people who voted them in one year could be the same people who vote them out another year. Isn't that right? And sometimes we want to own Jesus Christ as our Lord and then other times we live as if we don't. And Jesus calls us back. He still loves us. He still cares for us. And when he died on the cross, he died for those crowds. Over those people, he wept. And his heart is full of compassion, dear friends, for you and for me here tonight. Let's just think about this a little bit more. In whatever tradition we come from, and can I just say, it's just wonderful to see different expressions of the body of Christ coming together here tonight. Wonderful, praise God. It's a banger stew that honors God with the different ingredients and flavors being mixed up. Wonderful, how pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. But whatever our form of worship is on your normal Sunday, 
is Jesus Christ really welcome in our midst, honestly? Or are we jealously guarding something that is only a particular form, but certainly not the only one? Is Jesus Christ really welcome in our midst as we gather for worship on a Sunday? Or are we wanting to preserve something that honestly is more about me and my preference than about maybe honoring God and something that's going to be a magnet and bring others in? Is Jesus Christ really welcome when I want my little local church to be a private club for members only? Hmm. I was talking to a Christian leader serving in another part of Ireland and he was visiting a church. It was a church of Ireland some years ago. And he noticed there were new faces from other parts of the world. Delighted to see it. He said to one of the people in the church, it's wonderful to see new people here. To which he got the reply, oh, are there new people here? And he said, yes, look at them. Oh, he said, they're not one of ours. May God forgive us. May God forgive us. That's why I ask, is Jesus really welcome in our midst? Or are there other things that are more important to us? As a church, do we honestly desire to do Christ's will? Or is the church all about us? You see, if the church is really the kind of church he wants, we too will weep over the crowds. We too will have hearts of compassion for the people out there who rarely, if ever, are in a building like this in here except maybe for a funeral. Do we really care, honestly? Because Christ does. Are we a church that's like an ingrowing toenail or I be a church that looks out, goes out, reaches out, serves the community that we're a part of, has a local vision and a global vision, because that honors Christ. You know, a previous Archbishop of Canterbury, George Carey, once said this. I think this was really inspired. He said, in some Anglican churches that I have visited, of course, he was talking about England, Scott, um, in some Anglican churches I have visited, the only evidence of life is a cough. May God forgive us. There has to be more evidence of life, folks, than a cough. The crowd admired Jesus as he entered Jerusalem, but friends, that isn't good enough. And I hope this doesn't ex upset anybody, but it really is what the Bible teaches. We can admire Jesus Christ and go to hell. The whole message of the Christian faith is not about admiring Christ. It's about following him. And what I said is really what Jesus said. 
Not all who call me Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. We need to hear what he says. He looks for obedience. He looks for faithfulness. He looks for resilience. He looks for people who will keep going. Not suffering from the disease of give up itis. He's looking for a people who will be intentional and decisive in following him, not drifting and confused. He's looking for people who are faithful, not fickle. I think that's part of the challenge of the crowds. So as we go away this evening, I wonder could we think about these things, ask ourselves some heart-searching questions. And I want to finish just very, very briefly with one other crowd. It was a crowd in Jerusalem about seven or eight weeks after this. A man who had denied Jesus around a fireside when a teenage girl challenged him that he was a follower of Jesus, and you know who I'm talking about, Peter. That same man who wouldn't own up to being a follower of Jesus, some weeks later was preaching to crowds in Jerusalem. As we'd say in Belfast, he was a changed man. A new man, transformed, courageous, Faithful, following Christ as Christ wanted him to. Look at the difference the cross, the resurrection, and Pentecost made in the life of Simon Peter and in the lives of the others. Transformed people. And my prayer is that in the mercy of God and the grace of God, you and I this week will catch a fresh vision of hope and transformation, and more and more we'll be the people the Lord has called us to be. Because this week, Holy Week, isn't just about darkness, it's about a light breaking through the dark clouds. It's about a rainbow in the sky. It's about a God of hope who conquered sin and conquered death, who was raised from the dead, who is alive forevermore. He's a God who says to the crowds, you can have a fresh start, a new beginning. Follow me. Let us pray.